0: Whoa!
1: Well, first of all, a blessed New Year to everybody, but perhaps even more importantly, a blessed feast, or feasts, plural, in the Byzantine liturgical calendar of St. Basil the Great, but also the Feast of the Circumcision of Jesus Christ. This is a important feast day for us in the Byzantine Church, and it's rather, I think, appropriate, maybe providential, perhaps coincidental, I think more providential, that it falls on the first day of the civil calendar in our country, January 1st being the first day of the year, because what happens on the first day of the year? We, in a sense, circumcise our lives in that we cut away the old and we rise to the new. There is a kind of a a shedding of things as we look back and we try to do things anew. We make New Year's resolutions and so on. Well, a very similar thing happened with our Lord's circumcision, And this January 1st, this New Year's Day, is also the feast of the circumcision of our Lord in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. We might ask the question, well, why this particular feast? Why would that be a holy day on the calendar, and a rather important one, on the calendar of the Byzantine Church? Well, for that, I'm going to refer to a book that I highly recommend to all of you. From time to time, I like to recommend certain books certain authors and references. This one is called The Sexuality of Christ in Renaissance Art and in Modern Oblivion. That's a long title. I'll say it again, The Sexuality of Christ. That's right, The Sexuality of Christ in Renaissance Art and in Modern Oblivion by Leo Steinberg. Leo Steinberg. It's a real classic book, and it was written in 1983. That's the copyright. And we're going to quote from Leo Steinberg's work here because Basically, it's a book on art, our Renaissance uh, art, Catholic art, and how the whole spousal mystery of Jesus Christ, you know, the bridegroom, and we the bride, how that was reflected in the art of the church, and also in its liturgy, in its homilies, and so on. Before we get to that, though, I'm going to share with you the words from the evening Vesper service on the eve of January 1st in the Byzantine church, and we sing this prayer. In his love for the human race, the Savior condescended and willed to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. Eight days old, according to his mother, and eternal, according to his father. He did not look down upon the circumcision of the flesh. Therefore, O believers, let us cry out to him, You are our God, have mercy on us. Once again, we have an example of the dogmatic hymns from the Eastern churches. It's one of the hallmarks of our worship. If you notice how it always ends, it always ends asking for God's mercy, for someone to intercede for us, for God's mercy. But in this brief prayer, this dogmatic hymn, which is sung at Vespers in the Byzantine Church on the eve of January 1st, you notice that it affirms Christ's two natures. He says that the Savior condescended, condescended. That's the whole theme of this past few days, this whole time that we're in. In the liturgical calendar, God's condescension, his lowering himself, his emptying himself to become us. Remember, the creator becomes the creature while still remaining the creator. He becomes that which he was not while remaining what he was and is. So the Savior condescended and will to be wrapped in swaddling clothes, eight days old according to his mother. Now we're going to get to that word eight in a minute, and eternal according to his father. So you see, there's the two natures first one has a sense of time of earthliness that he gets from his blessed mother, which is why in the icons of the Mother of God in the Byzantine church, she's always depicted with an earthy red color on her outer garment. It means that Jesus received his earthly nature, his you know his human earthly nature from her. But then it says, "An eternal according to his Father, which means he was co-eternal. He was equal with his Father. He was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus was. Even though he became human, he remained God. He remained that second person of the Trinity, co-eternal, one in essence, one substance with his Father and the Holy Spirit. So there in that brief prayer, we have a profound proclamation of who Jesus is. And then it says, he did not look down upon the circumcision of the flesh. Now, there's a little play in words there because he had to condescend, as we heard earlier, he had to condescend to, in other words, he had to lower himself to take on flesh in the first place. And that's why it's interesting how the wording is here. He did not look down upon the circumcision of the flesh, but he did bend down to take it on. He submitted himself to his own laws, although he did not need his own laws. He was God. He makes the laws. He doesn't have to submit to them but he did. And that is part of the marvel of this concept, this whole reality of the condescension of our Lord. Let's go to our book today, again, The Sexuality of Jesus in Renaissance Art and Modern Oblivion. Although it's a long title, but it's an important book. It's by Leo Steinberg. That's a little bit easier to remember, the author, Leo Steinberg. This is what Leo says, and he's referring to Some of the great people of the church, the fathers of the church, later on St. Augustine and also uh, St. Thomas. And he points out that this Feast of the Circumcision and the naming of Christ, see he was named then too, was fixed for the first day of January from the mid-6th century. So this is a very ancient feast. We're talking about the 500s, 500 AD. He says this also, It says, by this time, most of the major themes in the theological interpretation of the event have crystallized. First, St. Paul's typological parallel remains axiomatic. Circumcision and baptism differ in outward form, but they agree in effect. So basically, the Old Testament rule for circumcision, by the way, we, we read about that in Exodus chapter 17, and again, it's spoken about in Leviticus chapter 12 in the Bible, What that was is that the firstborn son had to be circumcised. And that also harkens back to the covenant, way back to the covenant between Abraham and God. He said the sign of the covenant would be that every male would be circumcised. So St. Paul sees in that, as our author is saying here, he sees in that, because St. Paul mentions it in Colossians chapter 2, that it was a foretaste of baptism. Leo Steinberg says in his book, The Sacrament of the New Testament as of the old, is a sign or seal of a covenant between God and his chosen. In St. Cyril of Jerusalem's wording, the Christian faithful like Abraham receive the spiritual sign being circumcised in baptism by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the first reason for the circumcision. We're exploring here, why circumcision? Why did that have to happen to Jesus? Why is it such a big deal in the Byzantine church? The second theme is due to St. Augustine, where the Greek fathers continued to interpret Old Testament circumcision essentially as a token of initiation into Abraham's covenant with the Lord. St. Augustine declared it to be an instrument of grace for the remission of original sin. Instituted among the people of God, circumcision availed to signify the cleansing, even in infants, of the original sin, just as baptism, from the time of its institution, began to be of avail for the renewal of man. It was this ruling which henceforth prevailed in the West. Now, it's the second reason for circumcision. A third constant in patristic writings, those are the fathers of the church, such as St. Basil, whom we also celebrate today, as I mentioned. He's one of the great fathers of the Eastern Church. A third constant in patristic writings is the circumcision of Christ conceived as continuous with his work of redemption. Since the debt incurred by the sin of Adam cannot be met by Adam's insolvent progeny, and since Christ's blood pays the ransom, his circumcision became, as it were, a first installment, a down payment on behalf of mankind. Is because Christ was circumcised that the Christian no longer needs circumcision. In the words of St. Ambrose, Since the price has been paid for all after Christ suffered, there is no longer need for the blood of each individual to be shed by circumcision. Is referring to then a painting by an artist named Montaigne, He said that the earliest monumental treatment of the subject and the most profound in conception is the solicitous gesture of the mother of God in this painting called The Circumcision by, again, an artist called Mantena, an Italian artist. She averts her little boy's face, in other words, Jesus' face, to spare him a painful sight. This may also have a theological importance as if to say, not for you. Now, there is a fourth point. By conceiving Christ's circumcision as a type of the passion— the fathers made it a volitional act. Never did it occur to Christian writers or painters to think that the operation as imposed on an unwitting child. So, in other words, this was not imposed on Christ. He voluntarily took it on, as we said earlier, and we saw that in the liturgical text that we referred to. Christ's submission to circumcision was understood as a voluntary gift of his blood, prefiguring and initiating the sacrifice of the passion. When we come back, we're going to talk more about why Christ had to be circumcised and what that has to do with us.
0: I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Welcome to a St. Nicholas Minute. Did you know that a princess helped introduce St. Nicholas to the Western world? This happened in the year 972 when Princess Theophano, the niece of Emperor John of Constantinople, brought a mosaic icon of yours truly, St. Nicholas, to Rome as a wedding gift to her husband-to-be, Otto II, the future emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. After their royal wedding mass celebrated by Pope John Thirteenth in the old St. Peter's Basilica, Princess Theophano became the Lady die of her age. Suddenly, everything she did, including her love of St. Nicholas, seemed to be copied by everyone. In fact, besides me, there's one more thing she introduced to the Western world that you'll use during your meal this Christmas. The dinner fork. <laughs> So, as we raise our dinner forks this Christmas, let's remember the royal princess who worshiped the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as we proclaim Christ is born, glorify him. (laughs) You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. This is Bold Talk with Father Thomas Loya. We live in
1: strange times, full of contradictions, many of which we create and then force upon
0: ourselves. An example. To hear the rest of this and other bold talks with Father Thomas Loya, visit TaborLife.org and go to the main menu and click subscribe. subscribe.
1: Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Lager, your host. We're talking about the first day of the year, wishing you all a blessed new year, but also a blessed feast, plural, of St. Basil the Great and the feast of our Lord's circumcision on the eighth day of his earthly existence. This is a big day in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, and we're talking about why. So we're given several reasons. We're on point number five. And again, we're referring to a great book I highly recommend to all of you for a lot of reasons. The Sexuality of Christ in Renaissance, Art, and in Modern Oblivion by Leo Steinberg. Copyright 1983. Patristic literature associates the timing of their circumcision on the eighth day with the resurrection. Here, the arguments rest on the kind of mystical numerology we no longer take seriously, but it did formally engage some great minds. The reasoning runs somewhat as follows. Seven is the number of completion and fullness. For the world was created in seven days and is due to pass through seven ages. But if seven is perfect, then seven plus one is pluperfect. Eight, therefore, stands for renewal, regeneration. Hence the architectural traditions of eight-sided baptistries. And Christ rose from the dead on the day superseding the Sabbath, on the eighth day. Just as the world's seven ages will be followed in the eighth age by the general resurrection— these notions attach themselves almost from the beginning to all theological meditation on Christ's circumcision. From St. Justin Martyr in the second century to St. Thomas Aquinas, it is the sense of the mystery that the circumcision on the eighth day prefigures Christ's resurrection and thereby implicitly the resurrection of all. Now, there's another part in our reading here of this book by Leo Steinberg, one of my favorite parts, especially as an artist, because my background is in art, as many of you know. In fact, you can see some of my icon work, our murals that I painted in our church at Annunciation by going to our website, byzantinecatholic.com, and clicking on the photo page. Leo Steinberg then, from going from the theological, from the patristics and the fathers and so on, the saints, he talks about the artist then, And how, when you see pictures of Christ's crucifixion, you see where the lance was thrust into his side and the blood is coming out, the blood in the water, but oftentimes you see, as Leo points out, rightfully so, you see in these very Christian paintings, you see that trickle of blood trickling down to his groin area, the area where he would have been circumcised, almost as though it were a kind of hyphen, as the author says, and he says this, linking beginning and end, the knife's cut to the gash of the lance. We trace a passage in the body of Christ from man to God, the sexual member broaching the mortal passion, the breast yielding the gift of grace. Put into words, the anatomical consequence is this, that Christ's redemptive passion Which culminates on the cross in the blood of the Sacred Heart begins in the blood of the penis at his circumcision. So already Christ was beginning to redeem us by the fact that he endured circumcision, the shedding of blood. We hear in the scripture, and this is always a big theme of the great Bishop Sheen, he would say that sin is in the blood, and sin cannot be forgiven except by the shedding of blood. And we see in Christ already the shedding of his blood at circumcision. He's only eight days old. Again, we talked about eight being a very significant number. So, he sheds blood, which means he's already in the process of redeeming us. And it's interesting that the process itself of circumcision, what actually happens? Well, it's the opening of a part of a man that has to do with life in love, with generativity. Think about that. The act of circumcision actually, in a sense opens the male genitals to the world, to the action that can follow that brings about life and love. And isn't that what Jesus was about? Life and love. Isn't that what we are supposed to be about? Life and love. Isn't that what baptism is about? is to immerse us in the waters that cleanse us from all that is not life and love, and we rise to a new life. This is why we wear white as in purity. We wear white at a wedding. So, there's a great, even nuptial dimension to our baptism. This is even in the Catholic Catechism. So, you see, it's all about life and love. It's about the spousal mystery that St. John Paul II talks so much about in his Theology of the Body. So, it is very it is very significant, very appropriate that the artists, the Catholic artists that knew their theology, that knew this mystery, that they painted Christ on the cross in this way, where that trickle of blood went from one part of his body to another. And like a, as they mentioned, like a, a hyphen of blood connecting two things, two realities, both of which had to do with sacrifice, with the offering of himself in pain and blood, the self-giving. So hopefully by now you can see why this feast is very significant. Significant in terms of the incarnation this ongoing condescension that's happening you know it just started at christmas christ's nativity was only the beginning of his great condescension the great mystery his condescension unfolds continuously in events like his circumcision later on it'll be his presentation in the temple where he's offered in the temple so this whole season from christmas through january all the way to february 2nd is an unfolding of Christ, not only his incarnation, but his humiliation, his condescension, as the church fathers said, and they wrote into the Byzantine liturgical text. We use that word, the divine condescension. In other words, it's almost like he just couldn't humiliate himself enough. Christ submits to his own laws. Why? Did he have to? No, for us. As we read earlier from Little Steinberg's book, Christ pays the ransom, he sheds the blood so that we would not have to, not only on the cross, but at his very circumcision. So whenever we share with baby boys, when they share in their circumcision, they are sharing in Christ's circumcision. In a sense, it's like a brand mark that comes with pain and blood, the brand mark of immolation, of oblation of offering ourselves, that brand mark on a boy is a reminder to him that he will in some way have to give his life for another, for a wife, family, and maybe the church, which is also another form of wife. But he will have to offer himself like an oblation on behalf of others, just as Christ did. And circumcision is a mark, a lifelong mark of that. Maybe that's why God chose that particular action in that particular part of the body as the sign of his covenant between he and us. And he made that covenant, of course, starting with Abraham, Exodus chapter 17. So the covenant is one of that mutual self-giving, that self-sacrifice, even to the shedding of blood, giving your all pain, blood, whatever, spending ourselves on behalf of the beloved. God did that for us. We, in turn, do it for him and for one another. So, you see, circumcision, which the Old Testament practice of it, precedes baptism. It is important. It is significant for who Christ was, who he was revealing himself to be. It was significant in the Old Testament and it is significant for us now. Whether we actually circumcise boys or not is not so much the point. It's probably a good idea with all things considered, but the main thing is why. What that's about. Why it happened to Christ, why we celebrate it, why we enter into that through the liturgy of the church, through the holy day, and why it may be significant, why it may be significant for us today. Above all, it is significant in its spiritual context, its spiritual meaning. And what is that meaning? A dying to self, a total immolation and gift of self, even to the shedding of blood and the experience of pain, as Christ did on the cross in his ultimate oblation, his ultimate sacrifice of himself. As I always try to communicate here, the traditions that we come across in the Eastern churches, the same is true in the West, of course, but here we're highlighting in particular, of course, the Eastern lung of the church and its riches. These traditions are, like the scripture, not just history lessons. We must always have a historical basis to them, but they are relevant to us today. Christ's circumcision is our circumcision, is our circumcision. As St. Paul says in Colossians, it's the circumcision of our heart, a spiritual circumcision. And certainly, it is a most appropriate feast day for what is in the secular, the civil calendar, the beginning of a new year. Because circumcision, baptism, are all actions and entrances into newness of life, shedding of the old, opening to the new, to life and to love. Isn't it marvelous to be part of the church, to be immersed in these mysteries in a way that can only happen through the liturgy, the prayer, the life of the church. Well, thank you for listening. Once again, a blessed new year to all of you, a blessed feast of the circumcision of our Lord and St. Basil the Great. I'm
0: Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. EWTN, Communicating the Faith. You know, you get paid in heaven for the ministry that you do on here. I love your show. My life has completely changed through God's power and through His revelation. I've changed myself in my life. All my first fruits go to God, and I remain in God. I pray all the time. Your show is in my prayer. EWTN, Live Truth, Live Catholic.